0: From 2 scr 107.3 and the University of Technology, Sydney, this is Think Health. We need a new way of thinking about mental health and well-being, one that isn't led by a field dominated by Western views on health. This is the second part of our series where we're deconstructing the field of psychology and building it back up again with Indigenous-led approaches to mental health. This episode, you'll be hearing a panel hosted by Megan Williams. Megan is the head of the Giramar Indigenous Health Discipline at the University of Technology, Sydney. This episode sees Megan leading a discussion, talking to three white professionals working and researching in mental health. First, Megan asks the panel to introduce themselves, not just with their working titles, but also with some of their privileges and bias.
1: Hey, my name's Adam Dix. Uh, I'm a psychologist, Uh, I'm doing a PhD at UTS, and I'm the vice president of the Hearing Voices Network in New South Wales. Uh, I'm constantly fighting the urge to project the fact that I know everything, or that I have understandings of the world that should apply to everyone else, and in fighting that, try and be curious about how other people see the world.
2: My name's Mel Conyer. I work in private practice as a psychotherapist supervisor to group work and also work with organisations as a trainer and a consultant around trauma informed practice. I currently live and work on Camaragal country, which is uh, on the north side of beautiful Sydney Harbour. So I'm really mindful that the first fleet wasn't just history. I can pretty much walk to where that happened.
3: Uh, My name's Ruth Wells. I'm a research fellow at uh, University of New South Wales School of Psychiatry. Um, My research focuses, I'm a psychologist, and my research focuses on Syrian refugee mental health and um, how to support members of the community to support Um, people in their own communities. Um, I'm a white woman who was born in England. I live on unceded land. I live in Maroubra next to the beautiful ocean and I love the ocean every day. And also um, I get to work with peers here in Australia who I love. Could you tell us
4: how you first became involved in discussing decolonising psychology?
1: so for me my my perspective on colonization is really from the hearing voices network and i think um, really sharing experiences of working with people who have been colonized in lots of ways by medical views of their experience or psychiatric views of their experience or psychologist views of their experience and very much by kind of wider mainstream media and how they're seen through that kind of lens kind of creates this uh, this place where their kind of self and their identity gets completely destroyed and rebuilt in, in those lenses and trying to be in spaces where groups can work together to kind of share their own experience and have a place where they're heard and how that can really allow them some space to to kind of find an identity again that's that's actually theirs so just being part of that experience and watching people just utterly changed my kind of world and my view on and what that can do to people, what those colonising ways of seeing people can do to people.
4: Mm -hmm. Excellent. That's great to hear. Yeah. And what about you, Merle?
2: So I actually remember the the very moment where I kind of woke up. So I grew up in apartheid South Africa and came to Australia in the mid-1980s. And it was only about four years ago. I was in a workshop with a beautiful Aboriginal woman, Felicity Ryan. And she mentioned that Aboriginal people in this country have experienced genocide. And that was an absolutely ricocheting statement, because I had spent about 10 years working with asylum seekers and refugees. And so I knew the terms of the Genocide Convention. And I knew that only one of the five definitions needed to be met in order for genocide to be Um, defined and I had just for a few months started working with a community service in the Redfern Waterloo area of Sydney and the minute she said genocide I thought of the stories that people had shared with me and I ticked off in my head every all five of those um, acts of violence, of systemic political violence And I was absolutely mortified that I had lived in this country for over 20 or more more years, having come out of a racist society and having tried to untangle myself from racist structures, that I had walked this land for so many years and knew so little about the history. And so that moment I made a commitment to go and understand what was it that blocked me from understanding... And what shifted for me was the understanding that whilst I as an individual may aspire to be not a racist person, I was participating in systems and structures of racism that at that stage were quite invisible to me.
4: Mm. Excellent to hear. Thank you.
3: And what about you, Ruth? Um, I guess I come to it from a bit of a different place and maybe two places at once, like one as... An Australian as a white Australian who's grown up here and um, as a settler um, and th- I guess wanting to come to an understanding about how I can even start to think and talk about that um, and acknowledge words like genocide um, and noticing that my education as in clinical psychology didn't really include that at all um, and that that's really problematic <laughs> within the discipline of psychology we don't really talk about power dynamics at all we don't talk about feminism we don't talk about race we don't talk about any of these issues I also think that the word itself colonization is a really problematic one and it might mean really different things to different people um, so yeah there's the one perspective as an Australian having to grapple with that um, and then also my research has focused a lot on um, spending time in like uh, Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey and Syria and Palestine. Um, And so I had experiences that, especially, for example, in in the West Bank of Palestine, kind of seeing apartheid conditions and then going across to the other side of the wall and seeing people living very comfortable lives, very much like we do in Australia. And being really shocked and appalled and then realising that actually I was doing the exact same thing, living on stolen land. There's
4: something in the word decolonising with de meaning to deconstruct or undo. What do you think needs to occur or unoccur in psychology in order for you to even learn or not be of such influence when you
3: introduce your technologies? Um I guess I'm going to have to bring something up, which is about this word decolonisation. And there's a a woman in our group, an Aboriginal woman, who has said to us that this idea of decolonisation is perhaps potentially very hurtful because the idea that we can undo what's happened doesn't do justice to the fact that genocide has occurred and that it can't be undone. I really don't know the answer to that question. And so, yeah, I wonder how... Obviously, decolonization as a word in the academic disciplines has a long history um, and a lot of that from people who come from lived experience. And so it's obviously there's a lot of value in that term. But um, yeah, I'm just at a place where I'm really unsure about how to use that word. But I guess from the uh, perspective of the work that I've done with some of the people that I work with in Syria... And I'm currently working together with a friend to write about this, I guess, drawing on his manuscript, which is looking at suffering um, and thinking about suffering as a social phenomenon and that he argues that the root of suffering is injustice and the injustice that has occurred and that what we call psychological symptoms are a manifestation of that suffering. And um, if we just aim to treat those symptoms, then all we're doing is potentially like recapitulating that injustice. And what we need to do is actually stop the injustice from occurring. Um, And when we can't do that, actually acknowledge it and bring it to light and look at it.
4: Excellent, yeah. What about for you, Mel? Reflections on decolonizing and where to from there?
2: So I've been on quite a journey with this word. And I'll share the journey because what I discover is I have these moments of enlightenment and I think, oh, I understand. And then somewhere down the track, I suddenly get this awareness like, oh, no, that was just a white way of thinking about that. And I kind of get this another level of awareness. So I might take you on the journey because for me, it's an evolving um, way of understanding. And my understanding uh, was that decolonisation is around becoming aware of the ways that we're in reenacting practices of colonisation, and becoming um, uh, taking steps to protect against doing that. Uh, so initially, I saw decolonisation was an individual action, and so I started noticing things like whose voice counts in the room, whose knowledges count in the room. Who can apply pathologizing labels and what are the effects of doing that? Um, who sets up the condition for it having to be same place, same time, 50 minutes? And so the personal shifts I started making in the therapeutic space was treating the counselling room first and foremost as a place of hospitality and welcome. Uh, setting the times to suit the people who are consulting with me putting flexibility, gaps between sessions, recognising people live sometimes chaotic lives. So making space for people to arrive with their lives and not have to conform into a little box. The second phase of thinking about decolonisation was, I was still not disrupting the systems in which I was living in. And so the second phase of grappling with decolonisation, I realised I needed to act with others to try and disrupt the spaces. And and I came to what at the time was a really empowering statement for me. It went like this. I stand with others for decolonisation and offer my, my skills, I think the exact word, in support of healing and justice. And that was like this really empowering moment. I thought I had arrived <laughs> at what decolonisation is. And so I started then immersing myself in the community and starting to attend community rallies. and and looking at ways of supporting and trying to advocate for the structural change. I also started changing the way I operated in the systems where I had influence. So, For example, one organisation was engaging me to deliver training to people working with Aboriginal communities or to Aboriginal communities and organisations. I had spent a year sitting with two Elders. And they had given me permission to take the work that we'd done and bring it to communities and organisations working with Aboriginal communities. But one of my mentors, Aboriginal mentors, very subtly said to me, not about us, without us. And I realised I was not making space for Aboriginal people to have their own voice. Part of privilege is recognising where our privilege is shutting out other people's voices. So in that instance, I introduced Aboriginal people to the organisation and I stepped away from what was a single line of work that had been given to me. And Aboriginal people now deliver those services to communities on behalf of that organisation. My third level of awakening came from what Ruth has just mentioned. So we're part of a a group of people who've been coming together for the last year on a monthly basis around the question of what does decolonising psychology look like? And Jenny Holmes joined the group about three or four months ago and she said, um, decolonisation, it doesn't... That, I can't, she said, I can't see any link between decolonisation and psychology. She said decolonisation, for her, is about genocide. So initially I didn't understand Jenny's perspective. And so I went away and then started reading about critiques of decolonisation. And one that really informed me was by two authors by the name of... Tuck and Yang, who state that we cannot decolonize while we are still living in on unceded land, and that we while we are still preferencing um, non-aboriginal worldviews. And, and and just trying to make things better in our own space is in fact not decolonizing and may in fact be another form of racism, in that what we're doing is actually serving our own sense of responsibility or our own sense of guilt. And if decolonisation was even possible, we would all become landless. We would need to give up rights to live on this land. And we would need to um, give up rights to hold a dominant worldview. So where I sit right now is really in a dialectical position. I'm holding real respect for that perspective and it's, I still sit with a lot of questions and wondering what does that mean? and I expect that'll take me on a journey, at the same time as trying to inform the systems I'm connected to, at the same time as examining my personal practice. So I'm kind of sitting with decolonisation on those three layers right at the moment.
4: They do reflect that ecological model of health that we use in public health, where Mm -hmm. it's a real great simplifying tool for any issue really to tease out the individual family community and system level influences with some cross-cutting themes too so that's striking a chord with me what you're saying but adam what about you with your grappling with decolonizing and and where you sit with that
1: sorry i'm still absorbing what mel was just (laughs) saying she had so many fantastic things to say and i feel like she's you've grappled with those things so much more deeply than i have yeah um I guess for me, one of the things is really grappling with my own kind of the the way that I'm embedded in this dominant discourse, you know, as a settler, as a professional, as somebody who's got a whole range of different privileges. That my lenses are kind of they're the ones I've grown up with. They're the ones I, the water I swim in. Often I'm not even aware of that. how can i challenge that that kind of discourse in myself and how can i kind of be curious enough to reach out and try to touch other people other alternative discourses so that's one kind of that individual level um and it's this it's this constant challenge in therapy when you're working with somebody there are moments when if you can be open enough and you can be curious enough you can meet somebody else in a kind of more level way so that that, hierarchy isn't there. And that's something to strive towards. But i was I'm really interested in what Mel was saying about that kind of those other levels, how you can try to help the structures around you, how can you can help to deconstruct those. And I think, just as mill was saying, where you can, if you can help the people who have been kind of um, dominated by these discourses, if you can help them to find a the discourse themselves, that if decolonization is going to occur, it's the people who are being colonized that are going to do it. There's no way we can decolonize, and that was the real problem for me with that term, where it's not for us to decolonize. We're the colonizers, right mm. It's for the people are being colonized to, that's where it's going to happen that's in that space. So if we can do anything in those terms, it's mm. how can we make space for that to happen or how can we support or how can we um, destabilize our own? kind of communities and structures in a way that makes some space for that to happen. Mm. Because actually we're part of a, a system that's holding all that stuff in place.
4: strikes me in um, being with all of you about a respect that you have for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and I'm sensing that that's partly because we're sovereign owners of this land and there's business related to that but there's something also that you respect about our cultures whereas I'm often faced with say particularly students um, a perception of Aboriginal people as sick and prison rates are rising so we must be doing something wrong and if we weren't so sick then our models of care might be seen as having more value but they don't have value now because we're we're obviously so sick. So tell us some of the things that you've come to value about our First
1: Peoples of this country. Sure, well I'm just thinking of something that (laughs) happened a a few weeks ago It was just... um, having a conversation with this um, incredibly important man at the top of this huge organization, an Aboriginal man who's the CEO of this organization, and we're having a conversation on the phone, and something about the conversation just completely shifted me and kind of gave me this new understanding. I knew in part it was what we were talking about, but the actual discourse, the conversation we were having, was really um, so different from that privileged white, white male discourse that i I've generally experienced talking to important men at the top of big organizations and what happened was that there was this we, got, we were talking on the phone in a conference call and we're saying well we're talking about this and we're thinking we could do this together and we're proposing this and then there was this kind of he said he asked us a simple question and then he just there was this quiet on the other end of the phone and this quiet just had this strange kind of um, particular special quality to it where it was like well I'm listening to you I'm making a space and I'm listening. I don't have this, I, I'm not coming from a perspective where I, you know, I know what I want and I have an agenda. I'm sitting in this very quiet way and I'm listening to you. And we suddenly froze up and went, well, what What do we do? I don't know how to kind of converse. I'm used to trying to push my agenda in and, and change your mind and... But there was something kind of respectful in this this conversation that was at so much a higher level than this the discourse that I'm used to having in some ways. And this conversation went on for half an hour and it was filled with these spaces, where this these silences where he was listening to try and understand what we had to say. But I learned something about listening in a way that I had never experienced before. And um, since then, I've just had a couple of... Other interactions with Aboriginal people where I've noticed that this is actually this this is actually a cultural seems to be a cultural kind of practice that I need to learn about because it's a certain type of of listening mm,
4: you've got was it two ears and one mouth and that's the proportion you should yeah. use them in yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sure I've been told that a few times by <laughs> Uncle Rob <laughs> what are some of the things you value about our first people's
2: I I am learning to walk my life in a different way from what I'm learning from sitting with Aboriginal people. Um, There's a few ways that I kind of feel myself being reconfigured. Um, uh, The one is the centering of relationship. And how pivotal that is and how it changes everything. So really a- <coughs> attending to relationship, <coughs> Excuse me, attending to trust. Even meetings that it's not about what time you start the meeting, it's who are the people that need to be here. It's about not diving into a project, but spending the time getting to know each other getting a sense of trust. Can we walk this journey? Are we thinking of doing together? Do we have the kind of life experience and the relational capacity that this is going to be an enriching journey going forward? Uh, So, you know, I come from that very Western project management orientated style. And when I first, you know, sat with the community down on the South Coast, it was was really vividly, you know, different that we entered that space together with very different sense of time. I had kind of the straight line and I walked into a space of circles. The second thing that's really important is around generosity, a real spirit of generosity. Because I know that there are times I've been, I stumbled in, but what I've consistently experienced is that Aboriginal people reach out in a really clear way when there's some trust to let you know that that is a transgression and then walk the path to be able to redress that and stay together in stronger relationship. Um, another example for me that's really important is around connection to to land. When I was walking with the community in the desert, uh, there were young children with us, and we would we would not we were just in swags like there was nothing. There was a truck with water and food and swags for two weeks. That was it. Um, and I remember every time we would move on, we were, we were walking, we walked through the desert, Was um, I'd look back and everything had been taken away, everything had been buried, um, there'd been virtually no um, unorganic waste. And the land had been left in such a, 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 such a clean way, certainly to my Western eyes. And then when we would arrive at a new place... The chill we were all there in our hiking boots and stuff. The kids were barefoot, and they would go off. Little ones, three and five and seven. The eldest, I think, was eight. They'd go off with the dogs, and they'd go off exploring the waterholes for an hour or two. And it was the way, like I arrive in a city and I kind of go and a little explore. They knew their way around. For me, it was that real deep respect and embeddedness with the land and what that exposed to me was a time of profound grief for me because I came to realise how separate I was from nature and I hadn't even known it and so it was a moment of awakening of this loss of connection that I didn't even know I, I, I had and that came from seeing the children who would just run off and greet the land in all sorts of ways and then just seeing the the way that that was just interwoven in ways of being together so I know I could never understand the full depth of what country would mean but just having that little bit of insight of connection and observing the care and the respect um, really shook a foundation in me. Mm, Yeah it's
4: yeah brilliant to hear and I think there's so much grief for people in urban areas too either don't know family history or lost that family history mm. and uh, being in an urban area that constant reminder of the disconnection we have from land when everything tells us when we're Aboriginal mm. that connection to country is number one mm. so there is a uh, ongoing reminder of who, who we're supposed to be yet who we're not and even though I go to my country about every fortnight but I drive through land where I know it was cleared given away there were massacres So it's a really bittersweet connection to country Mm. too in these areas, especially close to the eastern seaboard where that, you know, impact of colonisation was Mm. experienced in
3: particular ways.
4: Mm. And Is
3: there anything you wanted to add, Ruth? Yeah, I mean, what Mel just said really resonated with me and when I thought about it a bit more. The word that came to mind was land. And I guess thinking about, you know, when I go overseas, I miss... (laughs) the land and that I really deeply love the land and and I try to go out every day or two and and to try and think about how I can be connected to it and what that means as a settler Um, but I had a conversation with um, a person from Europe a while ago and they said they were talking about their connection to their land and I said well I can't have that you know because of I felt so dislocated. Um, and so what I want to learn now is how to be able to have a connection to land and what that might look like and how to reconcile living in an urban environment with loving the land myself and how that can become something that contributes to caring for the land. And I don't know what that looks like.
4: Well, it sounds magic just hearing that. In thinking about decolonising, you know, we we can't technically undo history, but we certainly can forge a future together where there's plenty of space for that mutual learning, in many ways learning, across the generations of Aboriginal people, the urban, regional, remote, you know, great differences among Aboriginal people and all the different cultures that people also bring and and uh, negotiate that way forward i've had all of that for me encouragement from elders absolutely that it's about future thinking and you know aboriginal people are deadly systems thinkers too so yeah well I'll on that note leave it at that and yeah thanks so much
0: Thanks for tuning in to Think Health. This show is supported by the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SCR 107.3. This program is produced on Gadigal land of the Eora nation whose sovereignty was never ceded. We'll continue our journey into indigenous approaches to mental health in the next episode. This episode was produced and presented by Megan Williams with additional producers, Miles Herbert and Shane Anderson. If you want more information about the show, head to 2 thinkhealth. Thank you for listening.